the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Praise to the God who reigns above. God has been addressing the nation of Israel before they enter to conquer the promised land. God, speaking through Moses, reminded the people that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They were to not forget God's civil and ceremonial laws when dwelling in the land. Last time, we saw some laws and rules concerning people who were not allowed to enter the tabernacle. Now, we will look at some other laws about how the Israelites were to respect their neighbors. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 9. Now, these are the folks who can't enter the tabernacle. We come down to verse 9, and we've got some hygienic principles when you've got to go to war. So, verse 9, it says, When the host goes forth against your enemies, he says, you're going to have enemies sometimes. The army's going to have to go out. So, in dealing with those neighbors, these are not your good neighbors. These are the neighbors that they're doing more than just shooting off fireworks at 3 a.m. These are the neighbors that want to kill you. And so, when you've got to go forth against your enemies, he says, then you need to make sure you keep yourself from every wicked thing. The danger is when they would go out to war is to become like their enemy. And and the Lord says, I don't want you to do that. The word there, keep, means to be on your guard, to exercise great care in fulfilling your obligations. In other words, when you're in enemy territory, remember who you are. Remember who you are. We have a sign over there that says you're now entering the mission field, right? Well, you're also entering the enemy's territory. (laughs) Now, what's our job? Our job is to take back ground from the enemy, right? To knock down hell gates. It talks about how the the violent take that ground, you know? Well, we've got to take that ground too. But we don't do it like they do it. We need to remember who we are when we're in enemy territory. We're not to act like them. We're not to respond like them. You know, we're not to even wage warfare like them. The word there for a wicked thing, it means that which is just not morally pure, not morally good, that which is not according to God's standards. And so the idea is when you're out there and you're fighting, you need to still be who you're supposed to be. You need to still be who you're supposed to be. People have asked me and and said, what if someone broke into your home? What would you do to them? I would hurt them. And then I would tell them about Jesus while they were incapacitated. Because I don't know if I could kill somebody. I have great respect for those who work in the military and those who work in the armed forces because I know at any moment they have to make that decision. That would be very hard for me to end somebody's life. I wouldn't have a problem defending my family. But if that person was defenseless and disarmed, I would have a difficulty putting them down because I realize it's very likely they're going into a crisis eternity. I know it's necessary. I know the Bible says. I'm not disagreeing with the Bible. I'm just telling you my personal struggle. But I would tell them about Jesus. <laughs> I have great respect to some of the officers who have arrested or shot or injured folks because they were doing wickedness. And then they've gone and visited them in the jail and said, hey, I want to check on you and see how you're doing. I have amazing respect for that because they're showing love to their enemy. And the Lord, he tells them, he says, when you go out there, he says, you remember who you are. You have to fight. You have to defend your people. You have to do the right thing. But you remember who you are and you do the right thing in every way, not just in defending your people. 
Now, when you're out and abroad, one of the dangers is to let some things slip and slide. One of that had to do with the ritual purity. And so in verse 10, he explains what to do when you become hygienically defiled. In verse 10, he says, now, if there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of an, I love the King James, it's very discreet. If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness that chances him by night, then he shall go abroad out of the camp and he shall not come within the camp. This would be either a diuretic occurrence in one's sleep, uh, a wetting the bed, so to speak, a nocturnal emission of some sort. He says, if you discover that, then you need to get out of the camp before evening approaches and then you need to make sure you're ritually cleansed. Verse 11, but it shall be when evening comes on, he shall wash himself with water and when the sun is down, he shall come back into the camp again. So you're unclean ritually because of that. We already covered in Leviticus and I'm not gonna go through why again, get that hilarious sermon from the tape ministry somewhere. Only sermon I've ever gotten an ovation from when I finished it. But the idea is that you're richly unclean because of those things. So you need to leave the camp so you don't defile anybody else by touching them. Normally, you would have to go through all these elaborate rituals to cleanse yourself, but you're at war. They need you. God makes it a lot easier for you to get back into the camp. And so you just need to wash yourself. Just need to bathe yourself, and then you can come back in. He says in verse 12 here, what to do when nature calls, because that would defile yourself as well. So he says, verse 12, you shall also have a place without the camp, outside the camp, whither you shall go forth abroad, and you shall have a paddle upon your weapon. And it shall be when you shall ease yourself abroad, that means to go to the bathroom, you shall dig therewith, and you shall turn back and cover that which comes forth from you. When nature calls, you can't do it in the camp. And again, I can't stress enough, we might say, why would anyone do that? Just need to read a little bit of history and realize that even up till about two or three hundred years ago, I mean, you would just go outside your tent and you'd go. This is a man camp, okay? And it just didn't matter. They smelled like dung and pee and whatever, because, you know, there was just too much going on for you to go find some place to go wander off to, to do your business. So it's just how it worked. This is something hygienically that back then they just did their business. And so the Lord goes, no, you need to be ritually clean as you're fighting in my army. So you need to go outside the camp. And if, you know, while you're doing patrol duty, then you need to make sure there's a paddle on the bottom of your weapon so that you've got it with you and you can take care of it out there. Why would this make them unclean? Why would they need to do this? Even though they're at battle, they're not at the tabernacle. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore shall your camp be holy that he see no unclean thing in you and then turn away from you. The idea for Israel, every time they went to war is the Lord would fight their battles. Israel was not allowed to have a cavalry. One of the things that makes us so strong with our army is our tanks. I mean, these, these are the, these types of things. They just, you know, how do you punch through those things? You got guys in there just punching through everything else. They move quick and they're mobile and, and agile and all this kind of stuff with all the technology these days. Well, back then that was the chariot. That was the horse. Israel was not allowed to have a strong cavalry. They weren't allowed to have a strong type of uh, armament because they were to trust in the Lord for their victories. In the Psalms, David says, you know, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord, our God. He's the one who fights for us. When they went out frequently, they would have the, the priests go out in front of them. They would go out with singing and worship. They knew it didn't matter whether we're outnumbered or we outnumber them. Either way, it's the Lord who's going to give us the victory. And if he doesn't, we will fail. That was a, a consistent theme that in everything they did, this was a holy place. The army camp, we think frequently of an army place being a place where language occurs and certain other things occur and stuff because it's men's place. But the Lord told Israel, he goes, not so with you guys. You're not going to rape people when you conquer a city or a village. You're not going to kill children. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. You're going to do this the right way. You're going to do this in a way that honors me because I'm in your midst. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way, wherever we go, he's with us. 
We're not just temples of the Holy Spirit when we're at church or when we read our Bibles. We're temples at work. We're temples on the road. We're temples with our kids at home. Israel was in their armies to not make a distinction between the holy and the secular, the spiritual and the secular. And the Lord tells us the same thing. You know, Warren Wearsby said, whether we are on vacation or we're away from home on business, the Lord watches us and he desires us to be as careful where we're unknown as we are where we're known. I like that. Good wisdom here. Now, some people like to come and, and say, yep, see this, the Bible talks about cleanliness. Cleanliness is godliness. Cleanliness is not godliness. Dirtiness isn't either. What's interesting, you know where cleanliness is godliness comes from? It comes from the Quran. That's where it comes from. It comes from a false book. It doesn't come from the Bible. So cleanliness is not godliness. And I say that because I know some people are obsessed with that to the place where it's the most important thing in their lives. And be careful with that. I realize that some of you are very antimicrobial and other such things. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think God very much desires cleanliness and good hygiene. But what I'm saying is we're not to elevate it to godliness and make it our idol. God did not create us to be slobs. He didn't create us to be slobs with our homes or our bodies. But it is not on the same level as godliness. And it does not equal godliness. I've known some very proper very clean people who are very ungodly. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit and God does desire us to take care of that which he entrusts to my care. He gave me this body and I am to take care of it. But make sure it doesn't become your idol. Verse 15, what happens if an escaped slave comes across your path? Verse 15, the Lord says, you know, if your neighbor comes into the country and he's running from his master, well, he says, you shall not deliver unto his master, not hand him over or imprison him, the servant which has escaped from his master unto you. He shall dwell with you, even among you, in that place where he shall choose, in one of your gates where it likes him best. And you shall not oppress him. Not do wrong to him or mistreat him. Here again, we see God's true heart concerning slavery. God hates it. He hates it. People that tell you, oh, the Bible, it's okay with slavery. They are not reading the same Bible we are reading right now. God hated slavery. And when a neighbor from a different country came in and he was an escaped slave, the Lord says, don't turn him back over to his master. He's in your country now. And slavery is not okay in your country. You let him go free. Not only you let him go free, he can live wherever he wants, wherever it likes him best. He is a free man and you treat him as such. And you don't oppress him because he had been a slave. Don't look at him as less because he'd been a slave. God never, ever wants us to look at another human being as less than us because of their socioeconomic status, their background, their culture, their race, any of those things their education. God loves them and he wants us to be a blessing to them. Israel was to be as well. Now, what about forbidden occupations? People who do things, work in areas they shouldn't as it concerns worship. We'll look at verse 17. There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. One is just a female temple prostitute. The other one is a male temple prostitute. And that was not an allowable occupation in Israel. I do find it fascinating today that we have different words for folks in those industries now. Now there's sex workers. I think that dresses something up in a way that it should not be dressed. And I mean, if you do that and you're here tonight, you need to know that God loves you and he's not, he's not mad at you. God is angry at sin every day, but you need to repent because that's not an allowable vocation in Christ. Not an allowable vocation in Christ. Now also, verse 18, you shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog. A dog was a male prostitute. That was a name for it back then. You know, people will say, oh, the New Testament has nothing to say about homosexuality, nothing to say about these things. And every reference to dog in the New Testament letters is a reference to male prostitution. I mean, it's not okay with God. It's not something I made up. It's not something I've decided and said, well, I don't like gay people, so I'm going to say this is wrong. The Bible consistently teaches that this is not something that's permissible in God's God's way of doing things. And so here he says, you can't bring your offerings to the Lord of those things. 
You know, you should not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any vow. If you're going to bring your offering, say, oh, I want to commit something to the Lord and here's my offering. But it was purchased with money that was earned as a prostitute. And the Lord says, don't bring that to me. You can't rob the bank and say, yeah, but I tithe 10%, Pastor Will. It's all good. I know pastors will take donations from politicians who aren't believers or from, from organizations who aren't believers. Not going to happen here. I don't want anyone comforted thinking they're okay with God because they gave money to a church when they don't know the Lord. I don't want any of that. I'm not a hireling. Our church isn't a hireling. So these occupations and these financial donations were not permissible. So he says, listen, don't allow that. They come from a different country. That's okay. Hey, that's fine. They came from that place and they can live in your midst, but they can't work that way here and they can't bring those earnings as their offerings here. What about rules concerning lending? Verse 19, how do you deal with your neighbor when he has a need? He needs money. Well, it says, you shall not lend upon usury to your brother. Usury of money or usury of victuals, which means food. Usury of anything that is lent upon usury. The phrase lend upon usury actually means to lend with a bite. It means to charge interest. You are not allowed to do that as an Old Testament believer. You weren't allowed to charge interest to your fellow Jew. You weren't allowed to do that. Now, if you were doing business with someone who is not a Jew, you could because that was business, okay? But as far as making an individual loan to your brother or sister, you could not do that. You could not loan with interest. And the Bible in the New Testament says the same exact thing for believers. In fact, the New Testament goes a step further and it says, if you're going to give something to your brother, loan something to your brother, loan it and don't expect it back. Now, if someone has loaned you money, you need to pay it back. Don't go, well, Bible says he's not supposed to expect it back. That's him, not you. (laughs) You know, you pay your debts, the Bible says. You pay your debts. But if you're going to loan money to somebody, then you loan it to the Lord. You trust the Lord to pay you back. You trust the Lord to pay you back. Now, verse 20, unto a stranger you may lend upon usury, but unto your brother you should not lend upon usury, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you set your hand to do in the land whither you go to possess it. You know, it's interesting. The Lord, he says what? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, right? So the idea is as As we treat others, it's how we're going to be treated back by the Lord. So I don't know about you. I want good treatment from the Lord. So the Lord says, as you hand it out, that's how it'll be measured back to you. As you measure it out to others, that's how it'll be measured back to you. So be merciful, be generous. You know, don't ever charge interest to a brother or sister in the Lord. Um, They could do it for business purposes with a foreigner who is traveling through. We actually get more details on this in Exodus and Leviticus. He's just reminding them here. Now, what about vows? What about promises and contracts that are made? You may have to do those with your neighbor. Verse 21, when you shall vow a vow unto the Lord your God, you shall not slack to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and it would be sin in you. But if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in you. If you choose not to vow, you abstain, then there's no sin in doing so. That which has gone out of your lips, you shall keep and perform it. Even a freewill offering, according as you have vowed unto the Lord your God, that which you have promised with your mouth. So here we see as a general rule, all vows, and a vow is a voluntary commitment, a voluntary promise. If someone forces you to do something, that's not a vow. When I talk with couples who are going to get married, we do premarital counseling, we talk about vows. And I explain to them, I say, what is a vow? It is a free will decision, free will promise that you make. So if someone forces you to do it, it's not a valid vow. You know, so if someone forced you to marry somebody, you're not married. You know, if you say, I didn't want to do it, I, that was not something I wanted to promise. Well, then you're not married. It's a free will decision that you make. I know we don't struggle with that in the U.S. normally, but in other countries they do and you have to bring this up and you have to be able to set people free the idea back then is that happened a lot here you know the lord's saying when you make a voluntary vow when you have chosen it 
He says, you shall not slack to pay it. You shall not lag behind. Don't delay. Don't wait because the Lord will surely require it of you and it will be sin for you to do that. The word surely required of you means God is carefully seeking you out. He is carefully seeking to obtain it from you. You ever made a promise to God? I have never found God to slack on collecting. I've never. I made a promise to God one time. It was a promise when we were, we had just started the church. And oddly enough, I had come to, Pastor Gibbon invited some of the local Calvary leaders to come by. And I came, a couple of our elders came and he was talking about, he said, you know, you need to commit to giving 10% of the offerings that come into missions, at least. And I thought, you know, Lord, that's right. You know, if we're asking other people to give, we should be given too. And so we made that commitment and everything was rolling fine until the offerings went down. And then the economy crashed. And for about a year and a half, we didn't do it because we couldn't even pay the rent. And I was so stubborn with the Lord about it, so stubborn with the Lord, to the point where my heart grew so hard, I had forgotten about the commitment. And I was at a pastor's conference one year, and while this was going on, and I'm listening, and the teaching's incredible. The first two sessions, I was like, wow, it's powerful. But I felt this emptiness inside of me, and I'm like, what is going on? Why do I feel like intellectually I'm receiving everything? My heart is just dead to it. They had a little chapel on the campus there, and, and I was just like, I need to get alone with the Lord and find out what's up with me. And I got in there and I'm just seeking the Lord and praying and my heart is just hard. I could tell it's hard. I'm like, why is my heart hard? And after about an hour of seeking the Lord, the Lord goes, do you really want to find out? I was like, Lord, I want to hear what's going on with me. He goes, you made a promise to me and you've been violating it for the last year and a half. You know what I did? Immediately I got, Lord, but, but you know what's going on. And I mean, I was immediately stubborn and I had never dealt with it. And the Lord was, he was seeking it out to collect. And he said, Will, you're not going to be able to receive anything right now because you have not yielded this to me. And so I argued with the Lord for a good other hour. I spent two hours in that chapel. But at the end of it, I emerged and I gave it to the Lord and I had a great conference and we came home and we started doing it again. And the Lord took care of every need. Always did and always will. If you made a promise to God, you need to keep it. God's heart towards vows have not changed. Jesus in the New Testament said, don't make a vow. But if you do make a vow, you need to keep it. Fulfill your promise. To, to not do so is sin. Now, if you don't make a vow, then there's nothing wrong with that. God's not requiring you to make vows. But if you make a promise to God, you need to keep it. People tell me and say, well, we, we think we're thinking about divorce. And I say, listen, you made a promise to God and to one another. And God is going to hold you to that. You need to keep your promise. I urge you to keep your promise. Now we get to verses 24 and 25, and I urge you to do the same. If you're considering divorce tonight, you made a promise. You need to keep your promise. But down to verse 24 and 25, we close here with rules concerning your neighbor's property. He says, now when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes. That, uh, your, let me rephrase that. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes, your fill, at your own pleasure. So if you are walking through your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat to your heart's content. The word there, your fill, means until you're full. But... He says here, you shall not put any in of any vessel. Don't take any extra and save them for later. And the same thing goes here with your neighbor's corn. When you come into the standing corn of your neighbor's, then you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sickle onto your neighbor's standing corn. You can't cut a whole stock down and grab it and walk off, okay? The idea here is that with your property, you're not to be greedy and enclosed where you want to protect everything. But at the same time, if you're enjoying the hospitality of your neighbor, don't take advantage of it. And don't you think if all of us approached our own property and other people's property that way, that our world would be a better place? It'd be a lot better place. There was a big thing. I, I think it was probably when President Obama was around. You know, a lot of the idea of redistribution of wealth was just starting to come up. It's, now it's just a given that one side wants to do. But I heard some things that disturbed me from many believers. And they're like, I work hard for this paycheck. They're not going to take what I earn and this and that and the other thing. And, and I was like, hold on a second, time out. Who gives you the ability to work? And who does all your stuff really belong to? 
we need to be careful, okay? I understand people need to respect other people's property. That's not what I'm saying. But let's be careful and not let American greed somehow get confused with righteousness because that's not biblical. One of the reasons that me and Beverly purchased the home we're in now is because our previous home was very tiny. And it was hard when we'd invite people over to spend time with them. It was difficult. I mean, we got kids jumping all over us and stuff. And I, I enjoy that. Kids jumping all over me is great. But it was hard to have some deeper conversations with people when that was going on. And our, our main thing when we sought to buy a new home was we wanted it to be spacious enough that we could have people over and their kids could run around whatever and we could still have an adult conversation at the same time. And so that was what we looked for. We looked at a home and we thought, well, no. I mean, it's a nice home. We like the home, but it doesn't have those spaces where the kids can enjoy themselves and we can still have adult conversation. And we ended up buying the home that we did because that was what we prayed for. That's what we asked for. And when we walked in, it was just the whole thing just whoosh, it opened up. And we felt like this is it. This is a place that we can show hospitality to folks as they come over and just enjoy their company without feeling like we're all sitting on top of each other. You know, we recognize our home is not just for us. Our home is, is to bless other people. Our property is to bless other people. And the Lord wants us to approach our property that way. I think society would be a lot better with a lot of the ideas behind these rules here. And yet it didn't work very well for Israel, did it? They disobeyed God's law. They didn't love one another, but rather they exploited each other. And if the nation that had everything spelled out for them couldn't get it right, how do we expect to? And see, that's why we don't go back to the law for our salvation. That's why we don't go back to the law to know how to do things. We look to Christ. We look to the New Testament to know exactly how it is that God wants to live out the principles that we might see here in a way that pleases him. And then Christ, he can live out that love, you know, through us that's behind these laws so that we can fulfill that command to love our neighbor as ourself. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you teach us to love our enemies. You teach us to walk with you, to remember who we are in the midst of our enemies. You teach us to be holy, Lord. You teach us to not take advantage of one another, to love one another. We see all these principles relayed in the New Testament, even if these specific laws don't apply to us because we're not a nation. You know, the church isn't a nation, Lord. We recognize some of the principles behind this. Kindness to the stranger. You know, kindness to those that have been oppressed. You know, the idea of holy living, Lord. We, we, we see the principles here, even if we don't necessarily live by these laws. And so, Lord, help us to live out those principles. Fill us with your spirit that we might be those who are characterized by that attribute, that behold how they love one another, behold how they love their neighbor, Lord, that we might reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God desires for us to love our neighbor. According to the teachings of Jesus, everyone we encounter in a day is considered our neighbor. This includes people we disagree with, people that perhaps even annoy us, our very own enemies and those who are against us, we are to love them as God has loved us and willingly laid down his rights and life for us. Even when we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is the heart of God towards our neighbors. This is the heart of God towards us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app. 
available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.